This is the Biblical Unitarian Podcast. Hello, everybody, and welcome again to the Biblical Unitarian Podcast. This is episode number 59, entitled, What Does Son of God Mean in Luke? Part 2 of 3. As always, the Biblical Unitarian Podcast is made in order to help you start conversations with your family and friends about the oneness and unity of God and about the humanity of Jesus. Thank you so much for joining us today. My name is Dustin Smith. As always, I am your host. We are continuing our study of Luke's Gospel to see how he defines the title Son of God. It is often assumed, and thereby taught, that Son of God is a title referring to one who is divine, or maybe even a member within the Godhead. However, we have observed in Mark and in our initial study of Luke's Gospel that Son of God, when used of Jesus, is a title referring to the human anointed king, a royal figure, through whom God extends his rule and reign. Son of God always appears to be a person distinct from God the Father, from Yahweh himself. This episode of the Biblical Unitarian Podcast will continue our trek through Luke's Gospel, looking specifically at Jesus' baptism, the genealogy, and the temptation in the wilderness. Each of these portions of the Gospel of Luke offers further insight into what he means when attributing the title Son of God to Jesus. So, without further ado, let's begin today's study. Our first point today is looking at the Son of God announced at Jesus' baptism. I'm going to read a section of scripture here out of Luke chapter 3, starting in verse 15. Now, when the people were in a state of expectation, and all were wondering in their hearts about John as to whether he was the Christ, John answered and said to them all, As for me, I baptize you with water, but one is coming who is mightier than I, and I am not fit to untie the thong of his sandals. He will baptize you with the Holy Spirit and fire. His winnowing fork is in his hand to thoroughly clear his threshing floor and to gather the wheat into his barn, but he will burn up the chaff with unquenchable fire. The passage goes on and it says, Now when all the people were baptized, Jesus was also baptized. And while he was praying, heaven was opened, and the Holy Spirit descended upon him in bodily form like a dove. And a voice came out of heaven, You are my beloved Son, in you I am well pleased. That's Luke chapter 3, verses 15 through 17, and verses 21 through 22. The account given by Luke describes the preaching of the gospel by John the Baptist, including his message about the coming Messiah and the corresponding response from the crowds. According to John, the Messianic Son of God, as he is described by the voice from heaven in Luke 3.22, will be the eschatological judge who outranks John himself. It is also interesting to note that John's preaching and his baptisms led, as Luke wrote, quote, all to wonder in their hearts whether John was the Christ. This is interesting for two reasons. First, the prior understanding held by the crowds allowed for John the Baptist's behavior, his summons to repentance, and his gospel preaching to suggest that John might actually be the Christ, the Son of God. 
John the Baptist was, of course, a human being, functioning as an authoritative spokesman for God in the role of a prophet. Clearly, the crowds were not expecting the coming Messiah to be God himself or even some angelic figure. Rather, they were waiting for a human being through whom God would act in a powerful and mighty way. Second, as a prophetic figure, John the Baptist was able to miraculously know what the people were pondering, quote, in their hearts, end quote. In other words, the questioning as to whether John was the Messianic Son of God was not spoken out loud. It was considered quietly in the hearts of the people. John's knowledge of these internal questions is not due to him being divine. So when Luke's gospel later attributes the same miraculous knowledge of things spoken in the hearts to Jesus in Luke 5.22 and 9.47, this need not indicate that Jesus was divine either. Both Jesus and John the Baptist were empowered by God to perform the functions of a prophet. And those functions included the supernatural ability to read the hearts of their listeners. So it's an interesting point about the empowerment of John the Baptist, being able to listen to the deliberations of people that are not spoken out loud. And of course, Jesus is able to do the very same thing later in Luke's gospel. And so this actually tells us more about Jesus as an ideal human figure, rather than pointing to Jesus being some sort of divine figure. Moving on to Jesus' baptism, this is much like the episode in Mark's gospel. God speaks from heaven and announces that Jesus, the newly baptized and gifted with the Holy Spirit, is the Son of God. This echoes Psalm 2 and verse 7, where Yahweh declares that his anointed is the Son of God, the royal king. So, the baptism of Jesus served as Jesus' public anointing service for his role as Israel's Messiah, verbally confirmed by God himself. In fact, a few later Greek and Latin manuscripts of the passage describing God's declaration about Jesus at his baptism cite this verse with a quotation directly from Psalm 2 and verse 7, namely, saying, you are my son, today I have become your father. But this textual difference is universally understood as a secondary development from what is retained in all modern translations of Luke. Drawing on Psalm 2, Luke regards the announcement that the anointed and baptized Jesus is son of God, understood specifically as the messianic king. Our second point today is looking at Son of God in Luke's genealogy. Of course, I'm not going to read the entirety of Luke's genealogy. I'll read the first verse and the last verse, starting in Luke chapter 3 and verse 23. When he began his ministry, Jesus himself was about 30 years of age, being, as was supposed, the son of Joseph, the son of Eli. And the genealogy goes on and ultimately ends in verse 38 saying that he is the son of Enosh, the son of Seth, the son of Adam, the son of God. That's Luke 3, verses 23, and ultimately ending in verse 38. The placement of the genealogy by Luke immediately after 
the announcement of the baptized Jesus as Son of God is no accident. It was an intentional move by Luke. And even the Greek text indicates the deliberate connection between the two sections, between the baptism of Jesus and the beginning of the genealogy. This means that there is a similarity between Jesus as the royal Son of God and Adam as the Son of God, as is mentioned at the end of the genealogy. Let's examine the similarities between these two Son of God figures. First similarity, which seems pretty obvious, is that both Adam and Jesus functioned as human rulers through whom God enacts his reign. We can also identify that both Adam and Jesus were created by God, making God the actual father of both of these persons in a way that is not true of any other man. In short, Jesus' title, Son of God, was intended by Luke to be understood along the same lines as Adam, the initial Son of God. And Adam was not a divine being, for his very name, Adam in Hebrew, means human being. So Jesus is not only Son of God in the royal kingly sense, he is also the Son of Adam, who is the primordial human ruler. Of course, Jesus being placed at the end of a genealogy makes him a human being like all of his ancestors. No angelic figure could logically fit into a genealogy with dozens and dozens of human ancestors. Furthermore, having God himself at the head of the genealogy means that he would never be confused with Jesus, the Son of God. It should not be taken lightly that Luke offers a genealogy that traces Jesus' origins not to Adam, but actually to God himself. Surely, Luke's genealogy does not make Jesus out to be Yahweh in any way. Instead, Jesus is a son of God likened unto Adam, the original human being through whom God ruled the created order. Our third point today is looking at Son of God in the temptations of Jesus in the wilderness. So I'm going to read a passage here starting in Luke chapter 4 and verse 1. Jesus, full of the Holy Spirit, returned from the Jordan and was led around by the Spirit in the wilderness for 40 days, being tempted by the devil. And he ate nothing during those days, and when they had ended, he became hungry. And the devil said to him, If you are the Son of God, tell this stone to become bread. And Jesus answered him, It is written, Man shall not live on bread alone. And he led him up and showed him all the kingdoms of the world in a moment of time. And the devil said to him, I will give you all this domain and its glory, for it has been handed over to me, and I give it to whomever I wish. Therefore, if you will worship before me, it shall all be yours. Jesus answered him, It is written, You shall worship the Lord your God and serve him only. And he led him to Jerusalem and had him stand on the pinnacle of the temple and said to him, If you are the Son of God, throw yourself down from here. For it is written, He will command his angels concerning you to guard you. And 
on their hands. They will bear you up so that you will not strike your foot against a stone. But Jesus answered and said to him, It is said, You shall not put the Lord your God to the test. When the devil had finished every temptation, he left him until an appropriate time. That is Luke chapter 4, verses 1 through 13. Very, very interesting passage for our study where Jesus is tempted with the repeated phrase, If you are the Son of God. The temptation of Jesus in Luke 4 serves as a prudent place to explore what Luke means by this title, Son of God. In fact, the temptation uttered by the devil on all occasions deals if Jesus is really the Son of God. It would be strange if, from a logical standpoint, Son of God referred to Yahweh or a member within the triune Godhead. Why would the devil attempt to tempt God if he really was God, assuming that Son of God refers to divinity? In other words, why would the devil tempt Jesus, asking if he really was the Son of God, if Son of God meant a divine figure? Why would you tempt someone who is divine, asking him whether he really was divine? That's not really much of a temptation. Nothing thus far in Luke's Gospel would lead the reader to think that Son of God was anything other than a title referring to God's specially anointed king, a king like David and Adam, both of whom were human beings. It's also interesting to point out that the citations from Deuteronomy, the number 40 used as a duration marker, and the location of the temptation being in the wilderness, all echo the temptations of the Israelites in the desert, as we see in Exodus, Leviticus, Numbers, and Deuteronomy. Further confirmation of this connection lies in the fact that Israel as a nation is sometimes called Son of God. In two particular places within the Hebrew Bible, both of these times regarding their redemption from Egypt in Exodus. Consider these passages, Exodus chapter 4, verses 22 through 23. God says, Then you will say to Pharaoh, thus says the Lord, Israel is my son, my firstborn. So I said to you, let my son go that he may serve me. That's Exodus 4, verses 22 through 23. And also Hosea 11, 1, which says, When Israel was a youth, I loved him, and out of Egypt I called my son. Both those places, Exodus 4, 22 through 23, and Hosea 11, 1, indicate that Israel as a nation was identified as son of God. Since the Jewish understanding that the Messiah would be a representative figure for the people, the royal Son of God represents the nation of Israel as Son of God. Therefore, this aspect of Son of God, namely as a representative of Israel, certainly has nothing to do with a preexistent divine being. So it's very interesting that Jesus, as Son of God, being tempted for a duration of 40 days in the wilderness, seems to very clearly echo Israel, the Son of God, being tempted in the wilderness over the course of 40 years within the desert. In response to the first temptation, Jesus cites Deuteronomy chapter 8 and verse 3, 
which says, man shall not live by bread alone. Here Jesus picks a verse that regards the one tempted as a human being, as a man, o anthropos in Greek. So Jesus, in his response to the temptation, actually uses a verse that calls himself a human being. It's a very interesting way of describing himself. The second temptation deals with the kingdoms of the world and their glory. The devil, who apparently has access and authority over these kingdoms, offered them to Jesus. Luke has already told the reader in the dialogue between Mary and Gabriel that Jesus is the Davidic son of God who was to sit on the throne of David, reigning over the house of Jacob, and to possess a kingdom that would never end, back in Luke chapter 1, verses 32 through 33. These promises stem from the Davidic covenant of 2 Samuel 7, with Jesus being the promised recipient of these accolades, which were to be bestowed by God himself. So to take a different route, in which Jesus would collect the kingdoms from the devil instead, would be to deny the role of Son of God as portrayed in the Davidic covenant, specifically 2 Samuel 7 and verse 14, where God says, I will be his father and he will be my son. Thereby, Son of God for Jesus as the Davidic king is one bound up within the Davidic covenant as the one who, if he lives faithfully, will receive the promises bestowed by God, promised by God, within that particular covenant. So to take a different route in receiving the kingdoms from the devil would actually be a denial of the Davidic understanding of Son of God. That second temptation in Luke thereby is a way of dissuading Jesus from the understanding of Son of God as the Davidic king. The third temptation, the devil, had him stand on the pinnacle of the temple. Jesus' response is that he will not put the Lord your God to the test thus demonstrating his faithfulness and loyalty precisely as a son. It is interesting to look at the full quote of Deuteronomy 6.16. Jesus responds to Satan by saying, You shall not put the Lord your God to the test, but the full Deuteronomy verse actually says, You shall not put the Lord your God to the test as you tested him in Massah. Israel had tested God, according to the passage cited by Jesus, but Jesus was succeeding where Israel had failed. In short, it is apparent that Luke's portrayal of Jesus as Son of God in the temptation narrative constantly associates Jesus with humanity rather than some sort of divine understanding of Son of God. Jesus repeatedly demonstrates himself as a faithful human being, representing the nation of Israel as a loyal son of God. So, in conclusion, we have observed that Luke continues to depict Jesus as the son of God in a manner that is consistent with a high human Christology. Jesus' baptism reveals him as the royal son of God from Psalm 2.7. Namely, as the anointed king installed by Yahweh. The genealogy refers to Jesus as the climax of a long line of human beings. 
beginning with the original human Son of God, Adam, but actually commencing with God at the head of the genealogical list. This makes Jesus a Son of God like Adam, whose very name means human being. Lastly, Luke recounts the temptation by the devil, wherein Jesus' title, Son of God, is repeatedly called into question. But there is no hint that Son of God is a reference to Yahweh himself, or even some pre-existing heavenly being. Instead, Son of God is a representative of Israel, who demonstrated faithfulness to God as a loyal human son. Thus far, Luke's portrayal of Jesus as Son of God is consistent with the expectation presented in the Hebrew Bible, rather than what was outlined in the Trinitarian Council of Chalcedon. For Luke and Luke's Gospel, Son of God is an ideal human being. If you enjoy the Biblical Unitarian Podcast, please consider supporting us. You can check out this episode's description for a PayPal link. You can also check out the show notes that are linked with this episode for a direct link. You can also listen to the Biblical Unitarian Podcast in a variety of media forms. You can listen to it online, on iTunes, and on Spotify. The links to those are also in the show notes. We also have a Facebook group for discussing Biblical Unitarian Podcast episodes. Just go to Facebook and search in the search bar, Biblical Unitarian Podcast, and send a request to join. Thank you so much for listening to us today. My name is Dustin Smith, and until next time, you folks take care.